Good evening, everybody, and I'd like to welcome you all to the fifth in my Gresham College lecture series on the psychology of finance. So, lecture three, we looked at the mistakes that investors make, that you and I make, when we invest in the stock market. And then in lecture four, we looked at the mistakes that chief executives of companies make. What we're going to do today will be at the intersection of those two. We're going to look at the intersection of both us, investors, and also chief executives, but with a little bit of a twist, because the prey is now going to become the predator. So rather than the mistakes chief executives make, we're going to look at how they are going to exploit our mistakes. So now they're knowledgeable about psychological biases, and they're going to be doing things in order to exploit us to make their companies more profitable. And so that's why today's lecture is called How Companies Profit from Our Mistakes. And by our, this is at two levels. This is us in terms of investors in companies, and then also us as consumers and customers of products. So let me start with the first. So how do, customer, how do companies exploit our mistakes as investors? And as always, let me start with a story and example to set our ideas. So let's go all the way back to 1999. So that was the peak of the internet bubble. And at the time, there was a really exciting e-commerce startup called AppNet Systems. And it had just filed for an initial public offering. It was making its shares available under the tickle signal APPN. So everybody's excited about this new startup. They want to get the hold of the shares with the ticker APPN. They are, in fact, so excited about APPN that they got hold of the shares even before they were available. Well, how can that be because they weren't available? Well, what investors did is they got hold of actually a quite different share with the ticker symbol APPN. It was traded in a completely different market. It was the NASDAQ over-the-counter market, not even a listed market. Yet, as soon as the information came out about AppNet and it had the ticker symbol APPN, People just rushed to buy something else called APPN, even though they should have known that it wasn't available. And so what was APPN, the other one? This was an inactive circuit manufacturer called APN Technology. And this caused the trading to spike. So before AppNet had filed the IPO, only 200 shares traded in one day. As I said, this was an inactive company. Nobody really cared about it. And then in the two days after the filing, 7.3 million shares traded because people got excited about this defunct circuit manufacturer thinking it was this e-commerce startup. What do we really care about in finance? We care about prices. And in fact, what this did to the stock price is it caused it to rocket by 142%. Actually, I misremembered. No, it was 757% that it went up by. Now, that's also wrong. It was actually 142,757%. Right, so through buying the wrong stock, there were massive returns to this company. Now, you might think, well, that's a bit of a strange example to start with, because I said this is about how companies profit from our mistakes. So certainly, APN technology did profit. Well, its stock price went up by 142,000%. But it was just lucky. Right? There was nothing that it did in order to make its stock price go up. It was just lucky that AppNet happened to choose the same ticker symbol as them. But instead, what the rest of the lecture will do will be to look at deliberate actions that companies can undertake in order to exploit us as investors or customers this was just an opening example to highlight that we do make mistakes, and therefore, in the knowledge that we do, companies can take action. So let's still stay in 1999, but let's now go to a quite different company, and this is a bookstore, a bookstore which sells books related to computing, and therefore it was called Computer Literacy. And it had a website which was computerliteracy.com. But ironically, for a company called Consumer Literacy, its own customers were illiterate. They kept misspelling the website name of Computer Literacy. So they thought, well, let's change our name to something that people are most likely to spell more easily. And they changed their name to Fatbrain. 
Sorry, I'm not having a good day today. I'm making mistakes. It wasn't fatbrain. It was fatbrain.com. Right, and that .com was really important because 1999, as I said, that was the height of the internet bubble. And so by calling themselves fatbrain.com, their stock price rose by 33%, even though there was actually no change to their strategy. They were just selling as many through bricks and mortar and online as before. Now, as we know, you can always find one story to show any viewpoint, but the hallmark of all the lectures I'm trying to do here is large-scale rigorous evidence. And indeed, there was a great paper published in the Journal of Finance, the top finance journal, which found that any company which added .com, .net, or the word internet to its name between June 1998 and July 1999, where the internet bubble was really frothy, they yielded returns of 74%. Now, you might think, well, maybe that's not irrational. Maybe these companies were genuinely moving into the internet sector, and investors were smart. They realized the internet was the place to be. But interestingly, the authors dug deeper and found that even if the company had nothing to do with the internet and didn't even change what they did, just changing their name led to this 74% return. And so across the 183 companies that did this, this led to false value creation of $26 billion. Right, so there's often a debate as to, well, whether a high stock market is a bubble or is it justified by the growing economy. But I think this is the exact definition of a bubble. This was value creation, which appeared to be the case, but was not backed up by any fundamental change in what the companies were doing. So the whole lecture series is on the psychology of finance. And, but what is the psychological bias that this was exploiting? And I think it was potentially two interrelated biases. So one of these is known as the halo effect, which is we judge a person, a company, anything, on the basis of perhaps just one characteristic. So just because the company had .com in its name, people thought, well, these companies are innovative, they're creative, and so they were bought into. And the related other bias is called categorization. It's the fact that we like to have black and white views of the world, right? You're either a Remainer or you're a Brexiter, when in fact there might be people who think, well, we should be, there are pros and cons to EU membership. And similarly here, right, for most companies, they do sell through the internet and they do sell through bricks and mortar retail stores. But if you have black and white thinking, if you think you're either one or the other, then a company that has .com or .net in their name can convince everybody that they are norm a largely pure play internet company, even if they have a lot of bricks and mortar. Now, there was a funny Economist cartoon at the time where you have somebody begging for money who said, will work for food, unfortunately gets nothing. Then he had a sign saying, will work for food.com, and then a lot of people were just flooding their money into him, even though they might not get any return for it. And indeed, sadly, that was the case with the internet stocks. Many people piled into companies, and they didn't get much in terms of a return. Now, interestingly, this works both ways. So as we know, the internet bubble eventually burst. And so the same authors, but in a separate paper, looked at what happened after the dot-com crash E if you removed .com from your name. And what they found was that this yielded returns of 64%. So you got 73% of fake returns by adding .com, and then if you removed it, you got another 64%. And again, this was the case even if you did not change your business, even if you kept your internet business focus. And so this led to false value creation of $5.5 billion across 67 companies. Now you might think, well, okay, those are nice examples, but those were a bit dated, right? They were about 20 years ago in the internet bubble and subsequent crash. Now don't we have more efficient stock markets and people realize what's going on? Well, in fact, no. So I've got a bit few more modern examples. So in the coronavirus pandemic, right, we recognized that people were going to do business online, and so demand for Zoom, where we've probably spent most of our day, um, the demand rose substantially in the pandemic. 
And so people wanted to buy Zoom, but they didn't realize that Zoom's ticker was actually ZM, not Z-O-O-M. And people rushed to buy the company with a ticker symbol of Z-O-O-M, but that was a quite different company called Zoom Technologies, and this is a defunct Chinese wireless company. Those company shares rose by 1,500%, even though they had nothing to do with Zoom, the, software, the, the um, software that we wanted to actually buy. And then even more recently, um, just uh, last month, oh, I think the slides disappeared, sorry. So let's now move to a, a different topic, which is how companies can change their product names rather than their own names. And so here we're looking at mutual funds. So what is a mutual fund? You have an asset management company, and they're offering different funds where you can invest in them, and then they'll put your money in different places. Now, if there was a fund, let's say in 2000, and it was called the Gabelli Global Interactive Couch Potato Fund, would you buy it? Well, this seems a bit of a strange name, right? You've got the Fidelity European Fund, maybe the Fidelity Special Situations Fund. Who would buy a fund called the Interactive Couch Potato Fund? Well, the problem, in fact, was not couch potato. The problem was the word interactive. Why? Because people thought, well, this might be the collapse of the internet bubble, and so if they have the name interactive, then people might think they're going to be investing in overvalued stock. So instead, what they did was they changed their name to the Gabelli Growth Fund. Why did they do that? In 1999, they earned 116%, right? So they'd, they'd done extremely well, yet they didn't get the inflows that other funds got which had the same superior performance. So people were biased against them, perhaps because of this interactive in their name, so they just changed their name. And indeed, that's only one example, but what does the systematic study show? Well, what they found was that um, people just changed their name to reflect a current hot style. So if a fund added cautious in a downturn, or if a fund added the word growth in an upswing, then one year later, what happened was that that fund enjoyed new inflows of 28% compared to otherwise similar funds that had not changed their name. And this was true even if they did not actually change their holdings. So it could well be that you call yourself a cautious fund, but you're still holding tech stocks and biotechnology, uh, but because people just go by the name and not what you actually do, that's a way of actually exploiting people's demand for this. And what they found was actually there was no improvement in performance here, right? So people were at just duped by the name of the product and not what it did. Okay. Now, there was one slide which just seems to have disappeared, but let me just tell you the story of it anyway. If you go one month ago, what happened was that Volkswagen, um, the car manufacturer, decided to rename itself Volkswagen, V-O-L-T-S, claiming that it was going to be capitalizing on the um, improvements and the, the demand for electric vehicles. And what that led to was the market being euphoric, the stock price went up by 12%, and indeed the former CEO of the Japanese government pension investment fund, the largest asset owner in the world, said, well, this is great, this shows just how committed Volkswagen is to electric vehicles, they're calling themselves Volkswagen. Now, we already know from all of this that changing your name actually doesn't mean that you're changing the substance. But what was even worse in that situation is they didn't even change their name. It was an April Fool's joke that went wrong. Right? But people just looked at this, even a very respected investor, and thought, well, this is a sign that they're changing the business model. So what is the point of leading with all of this? Right? You might think, okay, this is really funny and these are great examples, but what is the deep learning behind this? Is that because of our biases, because we like to form quick opinions based on halos, based on a couple of characteristics, then it is really important for us to actually look beyond the name and the substance of what a company actually does. Right? So what is the equivalent of internet 
today. There might be things like cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, robotics. So if we're going to be investing in a company which claims to do that, check, does it indeed do it? Or another thing which is very popular nowadays is responsible investing. But there's many companies, there's many funds which claim to be responsible, but if you look at their actual holdings, they may not actually be doing this in terms of what they're buying or what they're voting for or voting against. Okay, so this highlights the importance of looking beneath the label, which sounds really obvious, but because of our biases, right, just telling yourself, I've bought a cybersecurity fund, that might be incorrect because the companies may not actually be in cybersecurity. Now, that being said, you might think, okay, yeah, there is a point to what I've said, but isn't it a bit narrow? Right? I'm talking about how companies can change names to reflect what is hot, but changing names, you can't do that all the time, right? You can only do this in a couple of circumstances. You can't do it every single year. So now what I want to do is a broader thing, which I'm going to call window dressing, which are broader actions that companies can undertake to affect the form of what they're doing without changing the substance. And so to do this, let's go to the idea of industries mattering. So we like to categorize companies, even though companies often do lots of different things. Right? So some companies might be involved in both chemicals and pharmaceuticals, but we don't often think of chemical-pharmaceutical mixture. We like to call it one or the other. And indeed, if you were to look at the Financial Times, right, or any newspaper, when it quotes the stock prices, it will quote the banks, the beverage companies, the chemical companies, and the pharmaceutical companies. There won't be a section for hybrid mixture companies. Now, the important point here is that there's some industries that are more desirable than others. So let's say pharmaceuticals is the desirable industry, right? It's exciting and growing. Chemicals, right, they make things like paints and resins not so exciting. And so there could be at least three reasons for why it's better to be classified as pharmaceuticals. Right, pharmaceutical companies typically have higher valuations. So if you are classified as pharmaceuticals, then when you are in the Financial Times, you are next to other pharmaceuticals companies which have really high valuation ratios and so people think, well, you should have a high valuation as well. Second reason is that there are some mutual funds that specialise in pharmaceuticals. What you have healthcare-only funds, when I don't know of any funds which specialise just in chemicals, because that's not as exciting a sector. And number three is that equity analysts, so these are brokers, such as Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, they are much more likely to cover a hot and growing sector like pharmaceuticals than they are chemicals. And you like a lot of people writing about your stock because it draws attention to it and it means that people are more willing to buy it. Now, what is really important is that companies have a little bit of a choice about which industry they're classified under. In the US, where this study was undertaken, the SEC, which is the regulator, they classify you according to the segment which has the most sales. So, let's say you've got two divisions, pharmaceuticals and chemicals, and they're approximately equally sized. What you would like to do is to make sure that the pharmaceuticals division is just slightly bigger than the chemicals one, so that you're classified as pharmaceuticals. It's much better to be 51.49 than 49.51. So if this is true, then there's a lot of testable predictions, and this is what the authors looked at. So they looked at, is there a jump at 50.50? So are you much more likely to be 51 pharma, 49 chem, rather than the other way around? And they found that you were, and there was no similar jump at any other number not at three quarters or one quarter or two thirds. There was something really special about 50-50. Why? Because the SEC then classifies you as being a pharmaceuticals company. What else did they look at? They looked at what did the company do in order to make themselves 51% pharmaceuticals. And they found that the bigger segment, the one which was 51%, had lower profit margins 
and lower inventories. So they basically sold off a lot of their inventories through price discounts in order to boost their sales and bring those sales to be just bigger than the other division and so be classified as being pharmaceuticals. What I really like is this next test they did. They found that there was no difference in investment between the two divisions. And why do I think this is important? Because you might think why they're tipping towards 51% pharmaceuticals is maybe the company is making a strategic shift towards pharmaceuticals and it's just trying to overload on that sector. But if that was the case, it should be investing more in that sector and it wasn't, which does suggest it's manipulation going on rather than just a desire to make that sector bigger. And indeed, further consistent with the manipulation story, what they found was the company ended up needing to restate their earnings later, which is something you have to do if you're later found to have overly inflated your earnings. And the next question is, well, why did they do that? Did they benefit? The answer is absolutely yes. The companies profited from our mistakes. So they benefited in many ways. Right, as soon as it was announced that a company was now slightly bigger in terms of pharmaceuticals, the stock price went up by 1.4%. And so when does this news break out? Well, in the fourth quarter of every year, right, the company then releases its sales across the whole year, and that's what the authors were looking at in terms of looking at the response to realising now that this company was now classified as pharmaceuticals. What else happened? Well, these companies were much more likely, in fact, 41% more likely to sell their shares. Why? Because now when they're selling shares on the market, they can say, we're a pharmaceuticals company selling our shares. That sounds much more attractive than saying we're a chemicals company selling our shares. They are able to get higher valuations. They're also able to use their shares to buy another company, to engage in stock finance mergers, something I'm going to come back to later in this lecture. So what is a stock finance merger? It's when you buy another company, but rather than using cash, you're going to use your own shares. And given that people thought, well, you've got shares of a pharmaceuticals company, they're much more willing to accept your shares and therefore it was easier to buy another company using your stock as currency. And then the CEO himself or herself was able to benefit. They were 42% more likely to cash in their stock options. Why? Because now they're classified as a pharmaceuticals company, their stock price was higher, and therefore it was much more attractive to cash in their equity. So what I've looked at in the um, start of this talk was how you can change your substance without changing your form. You're changing your name or you're changing the industry that you're classified under. But now what I want to do is to look at how companies can actually change their form, how they change the activities they are actually undertaking in order to do something called catering, to cater to investor appetite about what is hot. So what does that mean, catering to investor appetite? Let me again start with an example. So, going back again to the internet bubble, but it's a source of a lot of these mistakes. In 2001, there was a lot of excitement for anything related to tech. And so Enron entered into a 20-year partnership with Blockbuster. Remember, that used to be a company at some point. So this was a 20-year partnership to launch video on demand. So the idea was they were going to distribute movies through the fibre optic network that Enron had. And so the stock price of Enron was $40 in January 2001. A couple of years, months later, it had jumped to $90. But this 20-year partnership was actually short-lived. Two months later, it was dissolved. They decided to go their separate ways. But despite that, Enron benefited because there was so much excitement in the tech sector that if you did anything related to tech, you are actually making the investment here. You're not just changing your name, they're making an investment. The market reacted to that positively. And so that's one example, but is there large-scale evidence? And I wouldn't be here saying this if there wasn't. So here is the large-scale evidence. So what these people looked at 
was that in general, if a company has overvalued shares, right, people were buying into those shares because they were excited, did those companies invest more? And the answer is yes. Right, so here's the idea. Right, if indeed investors are buying into your company, they are excited about your business line. And even if your business line is not actually that productive, invest anyway, because you're giving investors what they want. They're saying, well, we're really excited about the sector. You're capitalizing on this overenthusiasm by expanding the size of your company. Now, when I talk about catering, you might think, well, isn't this actually good? Right, you're doing what the customers or the investors want. Right? If you think about a company that doesn't cater to its customers, isn't that a company which is just ignoring its customer base? So this is why what they needed to do was to show, is value actually being destroyed by giving the market what it wants, which at the time was a lot of investment, maybe in the tech sector. And they found that a lot of value was destroyed, so they looked at the long-term returns to that investment, they were negative. But any chief executive who's paid according to the short-term stock price might not care about the negative long-term returns. So again, what is the message that you should do? Well, if the market is overly excited about your sector, then pursue loads of investments in that sector, ride the wave of the investor excitement, and your stock price will go up even higher, just like with Enron and Blockbuster. And even if these investments are actually no good, the destruction in firm value might take many, many years to manifest and you might have been able to cash out all your shares before then. Now, we've looked at one way in which companies can spend money, which is investment. But another way that companies can spend money is through dividends. Now, a very famous finance theory argues that actually the dividends that a company pays should not matter to investors. Right? When you pay a dividend, Yes, the investor gets the money, but actually there's less money in the company, and so the rest of the company is worth less, the stock price goes down. As an example, let's say the company's share price is £10. If it pays out a £1 dividend, then the company's only worth £9 now. So as a shareholder, your total wealth is still 10 you've got a dividend of 1 and shares worth 9 Paying a dividend is no different to withdrawing money from a cash machine. If I have 10 pounds in my account and I withdraw one pound, I've got nine pounds in the account, but I'm no better off and no worse off. So in many cases, actually, it doesn't matter how much a dividends a company pays. But it does matter if investors make mistakes. If investors have appetite for dividends, then the company can cater to that appetite. So the question is, well, why might investors have appetite for dividends, even though they should be irrelevant, as I've explained? Well, this could be due to some fallacies. And one of these fallacies is known as the free dividends fallacy, which is they don't realize that the dividends that a company pays are at the expense of capital gains and the stock price because something is coming away from the company. And so if indeed investors think that dividends are free, right, when are dividends particularly in demand by investors? It might be when capital gains are low, it might be in a down stock market, where at least they think we're getting our return from the dividends. A second fallacy that's very famous is called the bird in the hand fallacy, where people think that dividends are safer then capital gains, just like a bird in the hand, is worth two in the bush. Why is that fallacy wrong? Well, it's true that when you get a dividend, you get a safe one pound for sure. But the value in your bank account or in your ATM goes down by one pound for sure as well. So you're trading something safe for something safe as well. But because that is a fallacy, because people think that dividends are safe, when is this particularly in demand? again, in a down economy, right? So when returns are low, when there's a lot of depression in the market, people want dividends because they think they're free and they think they're safe. 
So this was indeed backed up by the data. So what the authors did was they looked at the dividend premium. So what do I mean by this? You have two identical companies. They're in the same sector, similar profitability. The only thing they differ in is one of them pays dividends and the other doesn't. That's called the dividend premium. And what they found was that the dividend premium indeed is varying over time. Right? It's high in bad conditions and it's low in economic upswings when people don't bother about dividends, they're just about capital gains. And companies exploited this. How? Well, they would start to pay dividends when that dividend premium was high, when companies had an appetite for dividends, and then on the flip side, when the demand for dividends was low, they would stop paying dividends, and by doing that, they were able to get higher stock prices just by doing what the market was asking for even though what they were doing, paying dividends, should actually be irrelevant. This is something that companies can exploit, but it's also something that investors and mutual funds themselves can exploit. So if indeed investors like dividends for irrational reasons, when I'm choosing a fund, do I choose Fidelity European or the Gabelli Couch Potato Fund? I might look at what is the dividend yield of that fund not realising that funds with higher dividend yields might have lower capital gains. And so if indeed investors choose their funds based on the dividend yield, then these funds have the incentive to manipulate their dividend yield through a process which the authors called juicing. Right, so how do you squeeze extra bit of dividend out of your portfolio? What they did was they bought stocks just before they paid dividends, and sold stocks just after they paid the dividend. Now, such a strategy doesn't make money because after the stock has paid the dividend, the stock price falls. So yes, the fund collects the dividend, but it sells the stock at a lower price than before. But by repeatedly doing this, they were able to inflate their dividends. And so what the authors did is they took funds that had juiced the dividend yield and compared it to what would have happened had they not done that juicing. And what they found was they reduced their annual returns by 2.1%. So again, right, by taking these actions, this was bad in the long term, but it was often rewarded by flows in the short term because irrational investors, like you and I, bought into the funds based on the dividend yield, thinking it was something which was free money. What I've done so far was, let's start with the start, we looked at how you change your name or your main industry classification. You change your substance, but your, your form, but not your, your substance, but not your form. Then what we looked at is you're changing the actual stuff that you do in terms of spending money. Finally, what we're going to look at is how you're going to raise money. So where does the company get its money from in order to invest or in order to uh, pay out dividends? Well, one source is the bank, but the other source is you can raise money from the stock market. And there are indeed some times in which the stock market is really excited. And so when the stock market is really excited and values your company very highly, then what a lot of companies should do is they should issue shares. Like go public, sell your shares on the stock market when the stock market is hot. Now, if investors were rational, then they wouldn't fall for this, right? Because investors know that if a company is choosing to sell their shares, well, maybe that company knows that its shares are overvalued. I shouldn't buy them. It's just like if somebody comes to you and says, I'm going to sell you my used car, you're going to think, well, if they're going to sell it to me, given they know how good the car is because they're the owners of the car, I probably wouldn't want to buy it. So if investors were not fooled, then if a company tries to sell its shares, then the investor should not try to buy it. However, it may well be that investors don't realise this and investors are fooled, right? Because maybe investors don't know that actually the stock might be overvalued. They might think this is a great opportunity to get your hand on some scarce shares. Or maybe the investors are rational, but maybe they think that the company is raising shares for innocent reasons. 
Maybe it's because they want to undertake an investment, and so it's actually safe for me to buy those shares because they're going to use that money for good reasons. Now, unfortunately, these investors turn out to be wrong because if you look at the data, right, five years after a company goes public, the average fall in the stock price is 30%. So what we find is that a lot of companies are able to sell shares at overvalued prices, exploiting the fact that investors don't apply the scepticism that you should do to a used car salesman. They don't realise that if the company is trying to sell to them, then maybe there's some bad things going on. And part of this could be because of the disguise, right? No company's going to come out and say, we're going to sell our shares to you because they're overvalued, they're going to say, we're going to sell our shares to you because we've got some great uses of money. And what is the biggest use of money that you can have? It's to buy another company. So I talked about earlier this idea of a stock finance merger. You're issuing shares in order to buy another company. And one of the most famous examples for this was AOL buying Time Warner at the height of the internet bubble. So the AOL CEO knew that his shares were overpriced. He knew that the mispricing wouldn't last forever. So he thought, well, let me exchange my overpriced shares for some hard assets. Let me buy another company, Time Warner. And as this quote from Fortune, it said, well, the AOL CEO served his shareholders well. It was Time Warner that sold itself for nothing, excepting the overvalued AOL stock. Now, again, that's one example. What does large-scale research find? So if indeed companies are disguising their overvaluation by using their shares to buy other companies, we should see positive returns to cash finance deals because you're financed by cash. It's not that you're overvalued. But negative returns to stock finance deals. Why? Because your shares are overvalued and they're going to go down. Now, the fact that the shares are going to go down doesn't necessarily mean that the deal was bad, right? Because if your shares were overvalued, they would have gone down anyway. And so what another study found was actually your shares go down by less if you make one of these acquisitions. So let me repeat this. I know that my stock is overvalued. I know that if I do nothing, my shares are going to go down by 20% when the market corrects. So let me use some of my overvalued shares to buy another company. And if that company is not overvalued, then when there's the correction, maybe I'm going to fall by 10% rather than 20%. And this is indeed what turned out. And finally, what you can look at is, well, the acquirer should be more overvalued than targets. And the more overvalued you are, the more likely you are to use shares to buy another company. And indeed, all of this was borne out in the data as well. Okay, so, so far, I've spent over half an hour, most of my lecture, to talk about how companies can exploit investors. And I think this is the most important because investment is one of our biggest uses of money. So to avoid these issues is really important for our financial future. But let me spend the final part of my lecture before Q&A changing tack and looking at now on the exploitation of customers. So let's look at a product that some of us buy. So let's say you need to buy a new printer, right? We all have home offices now because we're all working from home. And you might think, well, in order to buy a new printer, we go to Amazon, we look at various printers, we look at the prices, we look at the customer ratings and so on. And that's what most people do. But they ignore the fact that actually, the main expense when you buy a printer is not the printer itself, but it's actually the printer toner. And in fact, what people have found was that the total cost of the toner and the fact that you need to buy several toners is 10 times higher than the initial cost of the printer. So what you should be doing if you were a rational customer was not only looking at the printer, but also the cost of the associated toners and the capacity of those toners, how many pages they will print, and comparing all of that. But many people don't do that. In fact, a study found that only 3% of printer buyers actually look at the cost of toners when they do that. 
And this applies to, to many other things. It also applies to razors and blades, right? We want to buy a new razor. We're going to look at the cost of the razor. In fact, that's the durable part, but the replaceable part, the, the razors, the blades themselves, they are where most of the cost is coming. And more generally than this, anything where you have a very visible cost part and then a hidden or shrouded part is where you might have consumers being duped. So another example might be, let's take a, a bank account, right? You have, say, the clear monthly fee, or maybe there's no fee at all, but you might not see what the overdraft fees are, what the fees are if you need to have a printed statement sent to you rather than an electronic statement, and so on. Or maybe if you go to a hotel, right? What is the fee that you're going to be seeing on the hotel website or on Expedia? That's the price per room but you might not know how much it costs to print at the business center, or how much does it cost if you want to drink at the minibar, or how much does it cost if you want to do your laundry. So all of these things are called shrouded attributes, right, where customers don't know the price of certain relevant things, be these toner cartridges, or razor blades, or minibar prices. Now, you might think, well, isn't there a, a solution to this, right? Isn't it in the interest of a transparent company to point out this behavior? So this is a great paper here by Xavier Gabex and David Laveson, which highlighted how actually these things would not have a light shone on them. So let me give you an example. So let's say it costs a hotel £100 to provide a room. And there is a company called Opaque, which charges £80 on the website, but then has £20 of hidden charges, like the minibar prices, the laundry, the business centre, and printing. And then you've got another company called Transparent, and that company just charges £100 with no add-ons. Right? So if it's just the baseline hotel prices of 100 versus 80, then the Transparent company is not going to get any business. So you might think it should say... Look, we are charging 100, my competitor, Opaque, yeah, they're charging you 80, but they're going to have all of these hidden fees. Well, that would seem to be the rational thing to do, is that you should shine a light on this shrouding that other companies are doing. Now, the problem with that is that it actually doesn't work, right? Because you actually have the choice to pay that £20 or not if you stay at Opaque. Right? So rather than using the laundry or using the minibar, you could pack your own extra change of clothes and maybe you could bring your own alcohol if you're going to have a party in a room afterwards. Now, all of those things are inconvenient, but maybe the inconvenience cost is only £10 rather than the price of £20. And so even if you shine the light on opaque and you say, look at those hidden charges, actually what you're doing is you're helping out the customer and so the customer ends up going to opaque and actually getting some surplus by not having to pay those £20 fees. So in general, right, so why is it that hotels don't shine the light on this hidden, sneaky behaviour by their rivals? Well, whenever they do that, whenever they provide more information, they're actually transferring part of the pie towards customers and at the expense of the hotel industry in general. And so this is why Gabex and Laveson were able to say that actually you don't get the hotel industry exposing these really bad practices. In the end, you might have everybody shrouding and hiding everything from customers. So again, what is the, the bias there? It's that customers are myopic. They don't bother to look at the cost of minibars or toners and so on. And therefore, a lot of companies get away with exploiting this. And one example of this is, going back to mutual funds, is the products they offer, they might be very transparent with certain parts of their fee structure, but very opaque with others, and customers fall for it. Why? Because your competitors don't draw their attention. Now, within um, mutual funds, so what is a mutual fund? You give your money to an asset manager and she invests for you. There are two main types of fees. So there's the upfront fee, 
which in America is often known as the load fee, when you buy the fund to begin with. And then afterwards, there's an annual management charge that you have to pay every year. And so before, all the fees used to be shrouded, but now people know that you need to consider the upfront fee. And if you go to a website, and I went to uh, Fidelity to do this, if you're buying, say, this fund here, it has a label saying, no load, no fee. Right? This is a no-fee fund. So the initial fee, which used to be hidden, now actually becomes really salient. However, the annual management charge is still non-salient. That is still shrouded and it's still hidden. And so what the people who did the study found was that there was a negative relationship between the fund flows and the initial charge. So not surprisingly, the funds which had fees up front were not getting a lot of demand. But on the flip side, right, there was actually a zero relationship or even a positive relationship between the annual management fee and the flows that you were getting. So if the companies that were, the funds that were charging higher fees every year were actually getting more business and more demand. Why? Because they didn't notice this because it was not as upfront as the initial charge. So long story short, initial charges are very visible, ongoing charges are not, and indeed investors were piling into funds with low initial fees, even if they have high ongoing charges. Okay, so the final thing that I'm going to discuss before the Q&A is how do we price our products in order to exploit biases. And notice this is something very different to what I said before. Before, there were some aspects of your pricing which were hidden, like the ongoing fees or the minibar prices. Here, surprisingly, everything could be transparent. Everything about your fee structure is visible, but you still might be able to dupe customers. So how can this be? Well, let me give you examples of two different types of goods. So one is experienced goods. So there, there's immediate costs, but benefits in the future, like going to the gym. Costs you money, and it's a bit of a struggle, but you're benefiting later. And on the flip side, you might have leisure goods, where you have immediate benefits, but delayed costs. So going on a credit card finance holiday, hopefully we'll be able to do this when the pandemic is over, that's something which satisfies that. Now, if you are a company, and you are in the sector of leisure goods, what is the bias that you can exploit? It's often the fact that people have what's known as time inconsistency. Right? So that is that they have self-control problems. Right? They know that something like this, which has delayed costs, they shouldn't do because of those long-term costs. But because those costs arise in the future, they might not think about them. And so if this is the case, right, then the pricing structure they want to have is a low upfront fee and a high variable fee. And this is the case with credit cards. Right, to get a credit card to begin with, it costs nothing. Or in fact, it might be a negative price. You get 10,000 air miles for signing up. But then in the future, you have the interest rate. Now, when a customer takes out a credit card, they're overconfident about their ability to pay it back. They'll say, yeah, we're going to take out it, we're going to buy things on the credit card, but we're going to pay it back every month. But in fact, for a leisure good, like a, a holiday or something like that, maybe you won't pay back the credit card. You're going to take even more borrowing to go on a nice holiday. And that's the same for mobile phones. Right? For mobile phones, you might overestimate the extent to which you will control how many minutes you use. And so mobile phone tariffs are often quite cheap. But if you exceed a, a certain minute's allowance, then the pricing goes up, and this is going to be the case here. Then on the flip side, right, what about for the experience good like the gym? Well, your pricing will be the opposite. You're going to offer a high upfront fee and then a low variable fee. And indeed, for many gyms, the variable fee is nothing. What you pay every month for a gym membership. And then every time you go in the future, you don't have to pay anything. It's covered by the membership. And what this exploits is the fact that people are overconfident 
about the extent to which they will go to the gym. Right? They think right now, when they are signing the gym contract, yes, I know that the gym is going to be costly, it takes a lot of effort, but I know there's loads of benefits in the future, so I'm going to commit to go to the gym, I'm going to buy this gym membership, and I'm going to go. But what do I mean by time inconsistency? Is you make a decision now, thinking you're going to go to the gym, let's say, every day of the week, or at least every weekend, but then when it comes to the weekend, you think, I'm tired, I've got to play with my kids, and so on, so you end up not going. Now, there is one counter-argument to what I've said, is how do we know that that pricing structure is not good for customers rather than exploiting them? Because you might think, well, if indeed going to the gym is costly, it takes effort, it takes time away, isn't it nice to have this pricing structure where if you have no cost of going because it's already paid up front, then actually the people are going to be more likely to go to the gym. So which is it? Do you offer a high upfront fee and no ongoing cost to dupe people who overestimate their ability to go or to help people by encouraging them to go each time? Well, to evaluate anything, you need data and this is the final study that I'm going to show you. So what the study looked at was um, a, they took data from a gym and they found that members that paid a monthly fee of $70 to go to this gym attended an average of 4.3 times per month. That was $17 per visit. When in fact, there was actually a 10-visit pass available, which was $10 per time that you went. So they were overpaying massively. In fact, out of a $1,400 annual gym expenditure, they could have saved $600 by paying as you go rather than by paying everything up front. Why? Because the company, the gym's pricing structure, um, exploited the fact that customers overestimated the extent to which they would go in the future. Right now, when they sign the contract, they think they will be able to turn down any of the temptations to do something else with their free time, but when it push comes to shove, they end up not actually uh, going. And the final thing I'm going to point out in terms of overconfidence is sometimes people can be overconfident about cancelling the membership. Right, so there's many free trials that we get where we end up not cancelling because to do that, you're going to have to call somebody and be on hold for a while. And this is actually the same for, for gym membership. So what the same authors did is they looked at people who had a monthly contract and who had an annual contract. Now, the monthly contract is more expensive. If you pay per month and multiply it by 12, then you're paying more than if you've got the annual contract up front. But what is the advantage of the monthly contract? Well, it's that you can cancel. And if you cancel, you only lose one month rather than one year. But what they found was that users with a monthly contract were 17% more likely to stay after a year than annual members. And so why will people pay this monthly option thinking, well, that gives me the ability to cancel, but then they just couldn't be bothered to cancel because they didn't want to wait in line on the telephone? And notice, if anything, right, this should go the other way because the people who are annual members should be more committed to the gym. They were willing to pay annually up front. They should be less likely to quit when actually it was the monthly people who were less likely to quit why? Because they overestimated the extent to which they would be willing to cancel by calling up the number. Okay, so that's the end of everything I had to say. The various ways in which companies can exploit our mistakes as investors and customers. I hope that's been interesting and useful. So let me um, welcome forward Claire to, to ask the questions. Alex, thank you so much. Really, really interesting presentation. And we do have a few questions from the online audience. Um, a couple of these came through about halfway through the lecture. Okay. So the first one is, are there systemic mistakes which we make and which businesses can exploit through store design and communications, online and physical? Yes, absolutely. And so um, there's been some research on the architecture of um, retail stores, particularly supermarkets. So um, there are some which would have 
um, attractive food, let's say junk food, at eye level. So if you put candy at eye level and healthier food at, at high, much higher or lower, then we're just much more likely to, to see the stuff in, in the middle. And again, this is irrational, right? What is the cost of looking up and looking down? It's zero, but because it's so tempting to look at something at, um, at eye level, that's a way of, of, of exploiting it. Also, in um, supermarkets with, with lots of queues, often they would put a lot of sweets um, in the checkout desk. Why? Because if you've got kids and you're queuing up, they might bug you to buy them sweets. And so that's why they'll have something which is particularly tempting for children. So those are ways in which they'll exploit our biases. Okay. Um, and then another audience member has said, these are the de facto or revealed behaviours, but what about the perceived behaviours of the investors? Can we compare these two? Um, so, I'm trying to think if I'm under, understanding the question correctly. So, yeah. Yeah, it did come in yeah. like halfway okay. through the lecture. Yeah. Um, so, these are the de facto or revealed behaviours. What about the perceived behaviours of the investors? Can we compare these two? So, I'm trying to, sorry, I'm trying to think about what the question is getting at. So, I, I certainly understand what we mean about the revealed behaviours. So, what we're looking at here is what investors actually did when faced with, say, different mutual funds to, to, to choose from. Um, so what was the second part of the question, sorry? Um, can we compare these to, I guess, the uh, revealed behaviours yeah. to perceived behaviours of investors? Um, so I think the perceived behaviour, what I think the question is getting at, is what they would have liked to do, right? So any rational investor would like to look at all of the aspects of a mutual fund. So maybe not just the upfront fee, but also the, the long-term fee afterwards. And I think what we're finding is a mismatch between the actual realised behaviour and the intent to begin with. And that's why we have a lot of these ways of exploiting it. So that's the whole idea of time inconsistency, right? If you are rational and in the cold light of day, you're going to be looking at every aspect of the decision which is relevant... But because we are in, uh, in a hurry, or maybe we just forget about these other relevant things, we actually do something quite differently to what we intended. Okay. Um, as uh, one of our members has said rather uh, disparagingly of themselves, as an aging couch potato with some income from ISAs, I've received various notifications that some of these funds have changed their names, usually with no reason given. For example, recently, Old Mutual Wealth. Yeah. Is this related to what you're talking about? Yes. So, so sometimes they, they actually end up changing their name because of a merger of, uh, uh, with another company. For example, First State, I hold in some of their funds. They're now First Centia just because they merged with a Japanese company. Now... If there's a merger, we still want to see, did anything change fundamentally? So did the fund manager change? And if so, that might be a reason to sell or maybe a reason to buy. But sometimes you do see these changes and there's nothing which happens to the actual fund. It's just a name change because of a merger. So I wouldn't react to that. Sometimes if there is indeed a, a, a name change, it might be because they are changing the investment style, but good brokers will often communicate to their clients and say, there has been this name change and this is the rationale behind that, and that should have just make you decide whether or not to, to change stuff. But I think the overriding um, sort of message of my talk is that when you have things like name changes, not to react hugely, because often these things are not really informative about actual substance. Okay. Um, and this one is perhaps more of an observation than a question, but um, it's saying, thanks for your great presentation. We recently found a company in Indonesia named Capua's Prima Coal with incredible upcoming growth, but the company has seen little interest from the institutional investors due to its name. Um, this is despite the fact that it's a zinc processing business. It has 0% ex exposure to coal. Mm. So I suppose it's another example of what you were talking about. That's, that's a great example. Thank you very much for that. And there was another example which um, a, a, a former member of my Gresham audience, when I did um, the lectures on um, serving society, he told me there was another Indonesian company. It was called, I think, Jahori Tin. And it was a dairy company, but people thought it was a tin mining company because it had tin in its name. So again, it suggests, well, look beyond this. And what they found was this was a great investment, which actually created a lot of value for wider society. So he runs a socially responsible fund. And this was something where many people just did not invest in because they thought it was involved in tin mining. But thank you for the additional example. Um, and that's all the questions that we have this evening. Um, I wanted to thank you again for a fantastic lecture. Did you want to talk about your next lecture? Absolutely. I just want to say thank you so much to everybody who supported this lecture series and this lecture series of all my colleagues at Gresham. 
My final one in this series of the psychology of finance will be in June. It's going to be on nudging society to better decisions. So I think in all five lectures, we looked at the mistakes that people make and how this leads to worse behavior and worse outcomes. But we're going to turn the tables and look at the positive side to psychological biases, how governments can use them to encourage good behaviours, let's say organ donation. Some of you might know the famous book Nudge by Dick Thaler, and it's going to be drawing some of some of his research and the work of the Behavioural Insights team here in the UK. So I hope to see some of you then. Yes, please do join us. And that's on the 11th of June at 6pm. And thank you for joining us this evening. Good evening.